Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. With me again is going to be Mr. Joel Bennett. And as you might have heard on the Monday episode, he talked all about his journey and experiences through baseball and life in general. If you didn't listen to that episode yet, I highly recommend going back and giving it a listen because it's one of the best episodes we've ever done, in my humble opinion. Uh, A little bit more on Joel, as we mentioned on Monday, he was a former MLB pitcher drafted by the Boston Red Sox in 1991 and pitched for the Philadelphia Phillies and Baltimore Orioles in the late 90s, went on to pitch for the New Jersey Jackals in the Northern League East and the Canadian American Association uh, throughout the early 2000s, and he went 59-19 and when he was with the Jackals. Pretty darn good record, if I'd say so myself. Uh, So with that, today we're going to be diving into baseball, pitching, and all the components of the game. So, Mr. Bennett, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Dan. Honor. So when it comes to baseball, especially pitching, uh, I know you definitely have a pretty good understanding of mechanics and movement because, well... Everyone wants to get pitching lessons from you. I uh, remember growing up, you were kind of like the uh, sort of the holy grail of pitching, so to speak, in the town. Everyone wanted their kid to get lessons from you and get feedback from you. Um, And you just really knew and understood pitching and baseball in general uh, very well. So when it comes down to kind of the basic pitching form, What does it break down to as far as the basic components and steps go? Excellent. So, yeah, I I love teaching. I mean, I've literally studied this for 20 some years, not only as a player, Mm -hmm. obviously you're spending time trying to get more efficient mechanically. I was never a big guy, six feet tall, 170 pounds. I wasn't, you know, 240 pounds. So I needed to get everything I could out of my body and stay safe. So in my career, I had over, over 1,800 innings. And then you think about all the times in between where you're throwing bullpens and throwing every day. And wouldn't even know how to begin to count how many times I've thrown a baseball. Mm-hmm. Still, I'm 50 years old and I throw BP to my players every day. And during tryouts, uh, we have 20 kids trying out. And I'll throw every kid 10 to 12 pitches. And now think about that <laughs> until they leave and realize that, wow, I just you know, through over 400 pitches. And, <laughs> and, and I had one injury in my career and it was, I was a starter, then a closer, then a starter, then a closer. And at the end of the year, I had a little tendonitis mm-hmm. tear, but never a surgery, never on a, a DL for like one week disabled this. So all that time I never got injured. And I took pride in that just being mechanically sound and knowing how to do it. And uh, being able to teach that. So getting back to studying it, uh, I work at a camp here. My friend and I run a baseball camp called RBI. So we videotape kids. And I videotape hundreds and hundreds of kids. And they're all different sizes, different shapes, throw different hand, throw some up here, some sidearm. So videotaping in 100% of the kids, if they move a certain way, 100% react exactly the same way. So you really start looking at things that make sense, make us more efficient. And what really scares me in today's world, Dan, is if you were to look on, what's everybody want to do? In order to get to the big leagues, you literally have to throw 95. Yep. The kids come back from camps that they go to. 
and tell me uh, they loved everything I did, but and the dads, yeah, but they told him if he's not throwing 90 to forget it, which just drives me insane. And it's mm-hmm. a 10 left-hander that throws 82. And I'm like, if there's a magic bullet to make you throw 90, guess what? Everybody would throw 95, everybody. And not everybody's capable of doing that. So we can get more efficient. We can hit spots better. And that's how I made it. I wasn't a 95 guy. I threw 85 to 88, but I could hit the glove wherever it was. I could throw a curveball in any situation. So studying mechanics and knowing it, and what makes me nervous about today's world is if you type in how to increase mechanics or how to increase pitching velocity, if you watch the first six videos, guess what you're going to see? Six different crazy things to try. Mm-hmm. So it's just true. And it's, it's, I watched some and I'm like scratching my head going, people are going to get hurt. And even today I'm hearing Tommy John surgery is not a bad thing. You'll get stronger. Like what? <laughs> from another part of your body and sticking in your elbow, going through a major surgery and being done for a year, but I'm looking forward to it. Right. That's just a different mindset than I have. For sure. That makes me nervous. So breaking it down, two things generate arm speed, legs and glove hand. Because you're born with your arm, you know, but we can get definitely more efficient with legs and glove hand. And glove hand is one thing that I, I counted one. I had 31 pitching coaches in my career. I played for 17 years. I played for multiple teams. Spring training, there's pitching coaches everywhere. So I counted one time, 31. How many of them, Dan, talked about glove hand? Maybe one at best? Zero. 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 <laughs> Never. Not one guy ever talked about how to use your glove hand. They would talk about release point and, you know, different pitches and all these things. And I remember these players I played with, you know, these huge 6'4", throwing 93 with movement, but couldn't throw a strike. And they're sending them to psychologists and psychiatrists and doing these crazy drills that I can think back, remember now as a 21-year-old kid watching, but not knowing at the time, right? Until I really started studying that a simple fix in their glove hand could seriously help them. So not one in all of those years did they ever talk about your glove hand. I'll get to that because that's the most important. But legs, um, you know, we've heard different things. There are some big-time pitching coaches that teach you know, stay tall and just fall towards home plate. There are other guys that are drop and drive. And it would frustrate me that kids would go from learning from me and then they'd go to a big time college for a camp and they'd come back and doing something crazy. I'm like, what are we doing? Well, they told me to do this at the camp. All right, who was teaching you? Uh, The players. I'm like, okay, how old was this kid? I don't know, like 19? Okay. (laughs) They think it's a, big deal because they go to this Florida state pitching camp and the coaches are making money off of it. And the kids are running the camp. Did I know how to teach at 19? No, some may, but some may not. They're just figuring out. And you think about, you know, I I have a lot of respect for these daddies that volunteer and coach because if we didn't, we wouldn't have these leagues. Mm -hmm. If a kid comes up and asks you, how do you throw a curveball? If you don't know as a male, right? It's hard for us. It's Mm -hmm. hard male to say you know what i don't know well let's find out most men are not going to do that what's a man going to do 
well, here's what you do, right? So we get a little dangerous with yep. making things up. So legs, what I teach is by the time you get to the top of your balance point, mm -hmm. and there are drills that I've seen taught at balance point that just totally defeat what we're trying to do. There needs to be something called a power lean. So by the time you get to the top of your balance point, we should already be going towards home plate a little bit. Because if you get to the balance point and just hang there, you've got no movement going towards home plate. Right. So to generate that, what happens is your back knee bends, your hips kick out from under you a little bit, and now you start going downhill. But as soon as your back knee bends, when you're just standing there, you cannot drive towards the plate. The only place you can push is straight up because that's where your weight is sitting. But if by the time you get to the top of your balance point, you have a little bit of a power lean, you start going towards home plate, now you can really get on your legs. Yes, your knee bends, but it bends because you're actually driving. You've already started downhill. Now you can get on the ball of your foot and push. Legs generate so much power. <clears throat> and there's some people that don't teach. They just want to tall and fall. Mm -hmm. After I've seen and watched and videotaped and seen how kids react, not using your legs leads to your upper body taking over. And that gets us in very... Um, compromising positions as far as elbow and things like that. So For by the sure. top of our balance position, we should have something called a power lean. We should be traveling downhill a little bit. Then you can, like I said, get on the ball at foot, your knee is bending and you are driving down the mound. So is it a drop and drive? Kind of. It is kind of. I don't like tall and fall. I like to use legs. I think it's really, really crucial. So that's number one. I would have to agree with all that. And I'm going to throw the physical therapy hat on here for a minute. Excellent. Um, because basically everything you just said is exactly what we want to see uh, baseball pitchers doing um, and kind of bringing in a few scientific articles here. Um, I think it was Kibler and Chandler published in 1995 um, actually looked at the relation between leg drive in pitching and um, basically looking at pitchers who had a lot of leg drive compared to those who didn't. And if you lacked leg drive or had no leg drive at all while pitching, you were increasing the rotational velocity demands of the shoulder 30 to 40% in order to transmit the same amount of force. And we have to kind of think anatomically, our biggest muscles are at our hips, in our legs, we look at the muscles of our shoulders and even on these, you know, bodybuilder balloon animal kind of guys, they're not near as big as the muscles in the legs. So the fact that you have to work them and strain them more and more and more, they're not meant for that. They're not built for that. Um, and another article from the nineties looked at the variables that uh, correlate with increased pitch velocity, like you said, and believe it or not, most of them deal with the legs and the trunk. So do you have enough knee flexion? Are you able to rotate and tilt your trunk as you should? Are you able to achieve pelvic angular velocity when you're throwing the ball? Are you able to maintain flexion at the knee? So a little bend in the knee when your stride foot contacts the ground, all these different factors related to increased pitch velocity. But when we hear of people talking about pitching, how often do you hear them looking at the legs and what's going on in the lower extremity 
versus, you know, just going right to places like the elbow, because like you said, Tommy John after all, right? So I'm so happy to hear you say it. I'm going to pick your brain. I need you to send me all that information because if I can help people with statistics, like you just gave me, that makes it more potent. So when I do coaches clinics, every time I do a coaches clinic, as I'm looking out in my crowd, I pick the biggest guy. Yep. And like I said, six feet tall, 170 pounds. So I pick these monsters and I'll have them come out and I have them get in their balance position. And then I will have them bend their back knee a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I will put my pointer finger against their front shoulder and say, okay, push against me. They cannot do it. I can hold them with one finger because when you bend your back knee and you're not moving, you're stationary. The only place you can push is up. You cannot mm-hmm. drop in a direction. So then everybody's laughing. I'm saying, you know, I mess with them. I thought you were a tough guy, right? (laughs) I'll get them up in their balance position and I'll put my hand against their shoulder and I'll say, okay, lean into me a little bit. As soon as I feel them lean, I'll say, now push. And of course they drive me through, you know, right out the room. So having that first move going downhill and being able to get a little bend in that knee as you're driving downhill is night and day. And when I can show them that, with that simple thing, these huge guys in front of me that can't even drive one inch when their knee is bent, it makes a big, big, big deal. So linear movement, right? That's another thing. We need to travel down the mound. I heard you talk about rotational. When you don't use your legs, your upper body, because let's face it, your legs deliver your body, mm-hmm. upper body then delivers your arm. But if your legs aren't delivering your upper body, your upper body then is going to panic because it knows what it's trying to do and try to get your backside through so you can throw the ball. And instead of staying linear and traveling down the mound, we get rotational because we've got to get our backside through. That leads to elbow issues. And all I got to do is watch a person throw for five minutes and I know if they're, if they have bad elbow or what. So talking about linear motion, and that's another thing, I, a word I say to kids all the time, travel, 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 travel. And you said when their front foot plants, inflection in that front knee absolutely has to happen. If you get rotational as that front foot lands and you land on a stiff front leg and you're just rotating, you'll get no extension. Now we start talking about rotator cuff stuff because you can't follow through properly. So linear motion, you need to travel. I tell kids, don't start your turn. Don't pull that glove hand and get your backside through until you've gotten out over that front leg, right? We need to travel through it. A lot of kids, because of their glove hand, which is going to talk about next, to me, it's the most important. As they're traveling, they start rotating east to west before they get through that front leg. And it's all, you're going to lack velocity, you're going to lack location, but you're going to gain pressure in that elbow. That's what we got to avoid. So the best way I can describe glove hand is if your hands are together in front of you like you're a pitcher right you got your ball in your hand it's in your glove if you separate like you're drawing a w with both hands so hands go down and separate and then come back up so that your glove hand is at least even with your elbow your glove hand side elbow or or even a little bit above that what you've done now is externally rotated your front shoulder and you can pull directly to your hip your shoulders are attached So if you think about your left shoulder goes down, your right shoulder is going to go up. If your left shoulder goes back, your right shoulder goes forward. They're attached, Mm -hmm. right? All those muscles, your trap, your clavicle, 
all those things are attaching your shoulders. So if your front shoulder flies open east to west, your backside's gonna drag and all that pressure's in your elbow. But if you can separate like a W, so at least your glove hand is above your elbow or even with it, your front shoulder is externally rotated. When your front shoulder is externally rotated, you can pull to your hip. If your glove hand is below your front elbow, you're now inwardly rotated. Your front shoulder is inwardly rotated. As you try to pull, it is then going to externally rotate and pull your front side out. You're going to swing east-west. It has to happen. Every kid I've ever filmed, if their glove hand is too low, they fly open. And there are pitchers in the big leagues that you can watch that do that, but there's, they get so much direction down the mound. Does every pitcher in the big leagues have proper mechanics? Would I want kids to watch and learn? No, no way. There are guys that don't throw properly that get away with it. Mm -hmm. And it's different when we're teaching. If I teach a hitter something incorrect, is he going to get hurt? No, he won't hit the ball. If I teach a pitcher something incorrectly, you've got a potential to hurt yourself. So talking about glove hand again, when your hands are together, you want to pretend you have two markers in your hands and you separate like you're drawing a W, right? That's a good throwing position. And I've seen people teach about um, pointing their thumbs down and staying there, sort of like an upside down W. If you get in that position, guaranteed your front side will fly open. It has to. It's just anatomically how we work. If you're inwardly rotated and you try to pull that glove hand, your front side has to swing open. So just by getting your glove hand, even with your front elbow or a little above it, you then can generate direction to pull directly to your hip because we want to turn almost like we're doing a cartwheel. We don't want to get east to west because then all that pressure gets in the elbow. So legs deliver the upper body, upper body delivers the arm, and there should be very little done with the backside, right? All the work is done with glove, hand ripping to your hip, legs driving, and it will just help everything. It'll help your follow through. The longer you extend, now your lats take over for rotator cuff. If you're going east to west and you're finishing standing straight up, all that strain is in supraspinatus and all those muscles in the rotator cuff that just weren't meant to do it. For sure. Um, I really like a lot of the points that you brought up there. Um, kind of dissecting into the rotational component a little bit. Um, the rotational core, um, I think the uh, specific terms were first coined by uh, Juan Santana and Stuart McGill, uh, two big human movement experts uh, back about six, seven years ago, and they call them the serapes. So there's the anterior and the posterior. And I think um, this is a little off topic, I guess. Um, but when we think about training muscles and training pitchers um, to throw faster, pitch better, whatever, we often think of things in components. We think of like, okay, well, they need to train their legs more. So we're going to make sure they can squat and lunge and we're going to load them up with more weight. We need to have them bench press more so they're stronger up top, whatever it is. But we forget that all these muscles are interconnected with one another. Uh, and that's what the uh, serapes actually are, are these anatomical continuations of muscle and tendons. Um, so anteriorly, so in the front of the body, it's the hip flexors and the adductors. So muscles in your groin and muscles that move your leg up connect with your entire core. 
So your obliques, they connect with your serratus anterior, your rhomboids, um, all these different muscles that control your scapula, your shoulder blade. And posteriorly, we see the same thing. It starts all the way down at our calves to our hamstrings, glutes, lats, pecs, everything is interconnected with one another. Uh, so I really like how you were kind of hitting on the importance of the rotational dynamic and the importance of tightening up and tensing um, everything before you pitch with that W kind of form. Because if you're not externally rotating uh, that front arm, like you were saying, the glove hand, uh, that external rotation component uh, actually elongates and stretches the lats because the lats are a powerful internal rotator. So if we lengthen the lats, when we go to contract them into that kind of follow through type motion, uh, that's going to allow us to generate more power. You know, if you um, if you're listening the, to this and you're just sitting here listening, you know, take your arm down by your sides, uh, straighten it and then push up. You can generate quite a bit of force. Now take it all the way to the end range and now try and push up. What happens? So in an elongated position, we can exert quite a bit of force. This is our strong point. But when we've already taken all of the ability to contract away, there's not a whole lot left and it's a lot easier to break that muscle. So in pitching with that W, that stretch on the lats allows it to contract more powerfully and more forcefully as a result. Um, and that W position is actually something you can train. Um, I actually use it a lot in personal training and physical therapy because it's great for working muscles that are often missed. It hits all of your upper back and middle back muscles which are often neglected due to poor posture, um, which I'm not going to go there because we can talk for hours about how posture and all these other factors impact athletic performance. But I felt like it was uh, really good that you brought up the rotational side of things and the different components like that W position, because anatomically, all that stuff checks out perfectly. <laughs> Well, I'm incredibly relieved that I'm not concentrating. <laughs> so we haven't talked about this before, so I'm glad we're on the same page here. But it's just reality. If you're if you're mechanically sound, you're going to be more efficient. Yep. And and again, going back to the danger aspect, there are some things being taught because there are some let's let's face it, there are physical freaks out there that can do things that not many people can do, right? So Aroldis Chapman, when he first came around, he's throwing 100. What was internet, people teaching pitching, all of them, what were they talking about? One guy, Aroldis Chapman. How many of him are there? One. Yep. So they were teaching, his stride was so long. So we need to stride longer. He's a scap loader, meaning you pinch your shoulder blades together as you separate. That must generate more power. Well, People were teaching scap loading back when, and their poster boys for scap loading were Mark Pryor and, oh, there were several of them. Anyway, going back, I'll think of the names as soon as we're done here probably, but they were teaching, Kerry Wood was another one, right? So all these guys back in the 90s that could throw 98, 99, and they all could pinch, right? They, they would scap load, so they started teaching that. But every one of those guys, all their poster boys, all had Tommy John shortly thereafter. Pryor's career was over, Kerry Wood faded. 
So we're teaching things that are hurting people. And scap loading means if you're just sitting in your chair and you lift your arms up and you pinch your shoulder blades together really hard, you already can tell if you're right-hander or left-hander, doesn't matter. If you think about your glove hand, when you scap load, where is your front side already? It's already flying open. That's just going to promote so much pressure in your elbow. So when I talk about separating like a W, we also should be looking over our glove hand side. It shouldn't be on the opposite. It still should be on our throwing side, right? We're looking over that glove hand side. It's still closed. Because remember, we talked about linear. We need to travel down the mound. If that front side starts swinging, now all that linear motion is gone, and we're now we're going east to west. Mm -hmm. I, I tell kids to picture this, is you want every ounce of energy you're generating going to the catcher's mitt. And if you can travel down the mound, stay sideways, and turn over your front leg, everything is going to be traveling to the mitt. As soon as your front side, your glove hand starts to swing and you get rotational, now we got movement going east to west when we're trying to throw the ball north to south to our catcher. So any leaking mo movement and motion, yes, we're going to lose velocity. We're absolutely going to lose location. But what I keep emphasizing is we're going to gain pressure in our elbow because our front side is gone. And now the only thing left is our arm coming through. So if we can use our glove hand because our shoulders are attached to pull our backside through, you can almost eliminate that. You really can. For sure. And um, I was thinking back about the scap loading a little bit. And I think I could be wrong with this because it's been a while. Um, believe it or not, you don't have a whole lot of time to watch baseball in grad school. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I was... I want to say Nolan Ryan was probably one of the early ones to do it. He kind of pitched with what I'd call like more of a proud chest kind of thing. Um, it happens to everyone. It yep. does. It's natural. When you separate and start that turn, you naturally scap load. Right. I've seen people teaching drills where they get kids on a mound. They get them in their balance position, just standing there, separate, pinch their shoulder blades together, and then try to throw so to the point where you're forcing that position, that totally goes against what we're trying to do, right? Totally goes against it. And it's a dangerous thing. And I'm glad you said, Nolan Ryan, that was one of the reasons I became a pitcher. Buckingham, Willie Randolph, baseball, Nolan Ryan, pitcher. He also shares my birthday. I think we're <laughs> spirits, except he could throw 100 and I can't. <laughs> and they did a study on him. He was like 40% more efficient with his legs and they did with, with sprinters and football players and legs, right? Just so strong. How else do you throw 96 as a 44 year old, right? Right. Owen Ryan was a big guy. So scap loading happens to everybody naturally, but we don't ever want to force that position. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, and I think I could be wrong about this, but I'm sure that the position that you're in, um, your throwing arm, when you scap load, not just how much, but the position of your arm, whether it's really high up, whether the elbow's extended or flexed, that might have some kind of linkage in there as well. Um, I could be totally wrong about that. No, the backside is okay, right? If your backside, because you got to, when you separate and you take the ball out of your glove, yep. your backside is going to scap load. But yep. if you do the same thing with your front side, so now it looks like somebody's pulling your hands backwards, yep. front side is going to fly. It has to. Now, 
we totally get rotational and all that pressure goes in the elbow. So there's gotta be a little bit of a scap load on the backside, there's going to be, but to force your glove hand side is so dangerous, I'm just telling you. So you gotta keep your glove hand on your throwing side. And once you start to pull to your hip and that turn happens north to south, then uh, we get way more efficient and less pressure. Makes makes sense. <laughs> I think I'm following. I'm uh, I'm learning a lot here. Um, not enough to go out and try out for the baseball team by any means. Yeah. But <laughs> so think about this. So right where you're sitting, Dan. So yep. spread your hands, yep. like throwing. Right, get a little wider, like an eagle. Now pinch your shoulder scap together. Right. So if you're throwing to the wall to your left right now and you're already pinched, as you start to go through, what's the first thing that happens? Your front side flies yep. open. But if you bring your glove hand towards me just a hair, so you're looking over your front side, right? Yep. Now you can totally turn to your hip. You feel that? Yep. So anatomically, when your glove hand is on your throwing side still and you're looking over your front shoulder, you can pull to your hip. But as soon as that glove hand gets to the opposite side of your head, the other side of your spine, it's going to switch east to west that's where we get elbow issues Absolutely. so yeah it happens everybody naturally but if you force that and you begin with your glove hand flying open you got no chance that, that makes a lot of sense um if you ever want to teach pitching to a bunch of physical therapy majors um i'd be happy to hook you up because we, we could use a little more of this sort of stuff i'm telling you and i've thought about that before like talking to some of my doctors that i know i love know a lot of doctors about here but they, they send kids out after they get hurt and, you know, go, go learn mechanics. Okay. Right. From who? <laughs> this is a funny story and I'm not picking on therapists, but I'm just telling you this one guy with the jackals, I had a kid with elbow. He came in with elbow injuries, mm -hmm. had a surgery. So he's coming out for surgery. So he comes back and he goes, I don't know if I was uh, being punked or what. So this guy was telling me, that because you lead with your elbow and your hand is behind the ball, that puts too much strain on your elbow. So he was literally having him throw <laughs> the back of his hand because it limited that rotation and strain in his elbow. And I'm going, does what? he <laughs> Does he know you're talking about throwing a ball? Or we're just laughing like, okay, we're never going back to this guy again. But I understand what you're saying, right? You're going to limit that flex when you but we're playing baseball here, guy. We, we can't yep. do it. So I would love, absolutely love it. If you want to set up somehow a video, right? Where I could- I could probably arrange that actually. To get everybody involved and you moving with me. And it would make so much sense because when you get it, can get up and move and feel what's going on, it's so different than just listening. You know what I mean? For sure. Um, so with this too, um, Part of pitching is obviously the pitch you throw. Uh, so there's the basic ones, fastball, curveball, changeup. Um, and then there's, of course, the crazy ones like the knuckleball, knuckle curve, sinker. Um, and I know a lot of that has to do with the hand position and the way that the ball releases from your wrist and hand. Um, so how do some of those differ as far as the positioning and the release from the wrist and the hand and does the main motion of pitching really change at all in response to the pitch that you're throwing so fastball change up are very similar mm -hmm. 
fingers are behind the ball and you're driving, right? Your fingers stay behind the ball and you are driving it through because obviously we want the most velocity there. A changeup is just getting away from our strongest two fingers, which are pointer finger and middle finger. And actually, and I hope you're going to agree with me, the weakest finger in your hand is your ring finger. Yep. He's pretty strong. Your ring finger is really weak. So when people throw a circle change up, the ball sits mainly on that ring finger. It's just a weaker finger. And you throw it just like a fastball, but because it's not coming out of those strong, firm pointer finger, middle finger, the ball comes out a little slower because there's not that pressure behind the ball staying through it. So the motion is exactly the same. That's why changeups are so devastating because they look like fastballs mm-hmm. right all the way to the plate. There's also other changeups. The one I teach is called the Fosh. So instead of having your middle finger and pointer finger together, you set, separate them a little bit. So there's some space between them. So a lot of energy can escape through there and just some different ways. So instead of being behind the ball so much, the fingers are more on the side of the ball and it just comes out slower it's easier to throw because it's just like your fastball grip. so fastball change up everything is exactly the same mm-hmm. never want to change arm speed the biggest thing i see with kids is they change arm speed when they're throwing different pitches they know the change up slower so they slow down but hitters can see that all day long they can see they react to you as a pitcher not the pitch that's why they look bad right right so see how you're moving as a pitcher and they're reacting to it. They see arm speed of a fastball and they react to it. But if you slow down as a pitcher, we as athletes recognize that we know they're not going to be able to throw it as hard. So that's number one. You've got to maintain arm speed. A curveball, as you're coming, and this is a danger thing too, because people teach this, there should never be a snap, twist, or turn as you're releasing. So if you can think about leading with your palm to the hitter and then right as you get ready to release turning your wrist to generate rotation okay so it's all in the wrist and not the palm per se we do not want to lead with your palm because when you do that then you try to generate that curveball rotation which if you're thinking about a clock as a right hander the ball is going to be spinning from one to seven the ultimate curveball is 12 to six which is Mm -hmm. hard to do Right. So we want that kind of rotation going down just the opposite of a fastball, which is from six to 12. So we want the opposite rotation. But if you lead with your palm and then try to turn the ball, you're just getting into that elbow. We don't want that. So you separate like your fastball. And as you come through, now you're getting your fingers on top of the ball. The skinny part of your wrist and your pinky now will be facing the catcher. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're leading with the side of your hand. Fingers are on top of the ball. And what I like to tell my pitchers is you pull your wrist and your chest to your left shins. So you want your whole body to finish. So you're coming over the front of the ball. If you extend your hand like you would on a fastball, it's just going to spin. It's not going to do anything. We need to create that downward break. So once you get to that position, fingers on top, leading with the side of your pinky side of your hand, and it's a top to bottom motion. Fastball changeup, we want extension. Curveball, we want to kind of cut that off a little bit, right? Because if you extend with a curveball, it just kind of floats out of your hand. You really want to think about pulling straight down. So once you get to this position where your fingers are on top and the pinky side of your hand and you pull straight down, there's never any snap, twist, or turn in that wrist. It's just in that position and it stays there. You're going to bring your chest and your wrist down to your landing leg shin and you're going to if you release it right you will hear the ball go you'll hear it come out of your hand because the seams are coming off your thumb 
If you're not hearing that sound, it's probably because you're trying to force it. You don't ever have to force a curveball. A slider, if you're thinking about a right-handed pitcher, the ball will pick away from a righty. So that's more of a two, two o'clock to eight o'clock, three to nine, right? It goes across, not yep. down, a slider. So that one is, instead of being directly behind the ball like a fastball, your hand is turned slightly. So it's almost like if I'm looking at my fingers, it's like a little reverse C, right? Yep. So I'm looking at my hand and I can see this, this C shape. So there, um, a way to think about this, now we're trying to pull the top of the ball and generate that rotation that's gonna take the ball away from a righty. If it's a lefty, it's gonna go away from a lefty. So that little wrist turn, now we're taking that. And I wanna talk about kids like putting someone in a headlock or pulling your hand to your opposite hip. Oh. So now instead of extension with a slider, which will do the same thing, it'll just spin and do nothing. Fastball change, we want extension. Curveball slider, we want to cut those off a little bit. So you get that little bit of a wrist turn and then you're pulling to your opposite hip. So we're getting on top of the ball now to generate that rotation, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah. Um, so split fingers, right? Split finger fastball. It's just you're really wide. Your fingers are split, and they're not on the total outside of the ball, but really wide, so there's a lot of ball showing. So obviously you're throwing it just like a fastball, but there's no way it can come out as fast as a fastball, and it also has a different rotation. So as it gets to home plate, it just falls off. It will drop straight down. It's a devastating pitch. It really is. Hard to throw. Not everybody has fingers for it or can control that. Knuckleball, I was fortunate enough that my roommate was Tim Wakefield for a year, right? So I asked him about it, and he learned because he was a position player with the Pirates. Mm -hmm. Wasn't being successful, was messing around throwing a knuckleball. They started watching him. Um, they brought one of the Huff brothers in, Charlie Huff. Uh, oh, no, it was uh, Negro. Now I don't know if it was the Negroes or Charlie Huff. I'm going to have to research that a little bit. Anyway. <laughs> Those guys came in that are famous knuckleballers and they worked with him. Mm -hmm. His grip, and a lot of people use pointer finger, middle finger, ring finger, the tips of their fingers, they push into the ball. Yep. But that's too many fingers because then you want to think about no rotation. So as you release, you need to push your fingers out. So the ball comes out with no spin. But if you got one, two, three, and your thumb, four points of contact on the ball, as you push, chances are, one of those fingers is going to push too hard and you're going to get rotation. Right. Which will lead to the ball just floating up there with nothing. Knuckleballs work and they're so hard to hit. Like people don't know the game. Like how can people not crush that? They're throwing at 60. Because we as athletes see the flight of the ball and we're swinging to where it's going to end up. Right. We recognize the ball flight and it's the hardest thing in sport to do is to hit a pitch. It just is. So we recognize the flight and our bat tries to meet up with that's why other pitches are devastating because they're moving differently. A knuckleball has no spin. Mm -hmm. Cutting through aerodynamically the air because of rotation, it's not spinning. So the air is catching that ball differently on all sides and it just moves like a butterfly. You can't predict. All you need to do is watch the catchers, right? They're trying to catch a thing they know is coming and they can't. So trying to hit one of those is so difficult. So his grip and most of them just use pointer finger, and middle finger, and they push the tips of those two fingers in, right, right into the back of the ball. And as you release, it, you want to think about giving the catcher 
a high five. There's no wrist snap because we don't want rotation. So right at release point, you push those fingers out and don't snap your wrist so the ball comes out with no rotation. Why are there not many people that throw knuckleballs? Incredibly difficult to do. It just is hard to get no rotation on something you're throwing. So there's not many that can do it. And those that are really good at it, it's just very difficult to hit. So there are so many pitches I can and have at some point thrown them all, but ultimately you stick with what's your best, right? What works for you. Right. And uh, another great pitch is called a cutter. Mm -hmm. Similar to it's in between a fastball and a slider. So it comes out of your hand looking just like a fastball, but there's just a little bit of tilt on the rotation. So again, like I always got to think about it, the best cutter in the world, Mariano Rivera. He threw one pitch, right? He yep. didn't throw balls. He didn't throw changeups. He threw fastballs and cutters. People knew it was coming and he made them look foolish, breaking bats of lefties because the ball was just riding in on them. And again, we talked about taking a mental picture. It's been proven you can't see the ball like 15 feet in as a hitter. Mm -hmm. I just can't see the ball moving that fast from 15 feet in. So where did his pitch start breaking? Probably about eight feet in front of the plate. So they saw the ball leave his hand. They see it. They're tracking. They start their swing. By the time they've committed to their swing, the ball has just moved six inches. Yep. Right? So that's why they couldn't make contact with it. So a cutter is a fastball grip, but you just get a little bit off center with the ball in a tiny bit of a wrist turn. We already talked about that reverse C with a slider. Yep. It's just less of a turn. And instead of driving the back of the ball like we do on a fastball, now we're thinking about pulling the top of the ball with your pointer finger. You'll feel it the most there. So if you think about pulling the top of that ball, now the four seam rotation, which is 612, is still 612, but there's just a little bit of a tilt and it's spinning a little bit more, I wanna say like five to 11. There's just a little bit of a different rotation. So just that little bit of a different rotation on the ball just catches the air a little bit different and the ball just rides in from a righty. It'll ride away from a right-hander a little bit, lefty stone cutters. It'll ride just a little bit away, you know, eight to 10 inches away from that lefty. And it's such late break. That's why hitters have such trouble with it because if it's breaking late, they can't see it. And that's why it's important with curveballs that we're throwing the ball out front, top to bottom. And it's breaking when it gets to home plate, not out of your hand. Because if you see a ball looping, easy to track right right that's uh that's interesting and uh I, again this is a lot more in depth than i've ever gotten uh from uh courses on biomechanics and movement and um breaking down the um, musculoskeletal components of throwing a ball uh, so this is pretty interesting stuff and i i, I just it's amazing how little tweaks just the hand positioning, the wrist positioning, the way that you even uh, act at the palm and the wrist can have such a big impact on the outcome of the pitch, so to speak. You know, if you think about not just pitchers, but the throwing motion in general, if you watch NFL quarterbacks, they separate their front side will pull through before they throw the ball, their non-throwing hand pulls through to generate your backside. If you watch a tennis player, they toss the ball up on the serve, and as they swing, their front side pulls through. If you're watching guys throw karate punches, right? If they're doing a demo or board breaking, their, their non-punching hand is not laying at their side. They lead with it. 
it's out in front. And as they punch, they pull it back because that generates that force. So if you think about any throwing motion, if you watch closely things you never think about, quarterback throwing a football, tennis player serving, um, guys throwing a javelin, throwing a shot put, watch their front side, their non-throwing hand, and it is so aggressive. It's things you never think about when you're not doing these things, but if you're not using your front side properly, you're not even going to come close to generating the power your potential, you know, you potentially have. For sure. Um, with that, are there any specific like exercises or training techniques or anything that have helped you or anything that you're really using a lot with your own athletes? Absolutely. So before, during our warm up, we do a lot of dynamic stretches, but I have them do something called, and this is something you're going to have to do to know what I'm talking about. So we get in a push up position and we maintain straight arms and then we drop our chest to the floor, but maintain straight arms and then push our spine to the ceiling. So your shoulder is really moving through a huge range of motion. Yep. Your arms are extended and you drop your chest to the floor and then push your spine to the ceiling and your shoulders just, there's so much movement in there, but you're really focusing on your scaps, right? Your scapula. Yep. And my favorite thing is called YTWL. So yep. I have a stance and I have them bend over almost 45 degrees, arms hanging. And they pull their arms up into a Y position and pinch. Yep. And we drop. And then we go out to the side like a capital T and pinch. And it's not just a swing. We come up and we pinch and hold and down. And then a W, if you can think about forming the letter W and pinch. So you bent over a little bit at this and we pinch and then down. And then one capital L and then the opposite direction, right? So one arm's out to the side, one above your head. And you do about four rounds of that and it starts burning so much your shoulders, right? Because we're yeah. working... Uh, rotator cuff and, and those muscles that that stabilize your scapula so most injuries in shoulder are because we're just not our backside's not strong enough you think about kids they're doing push-ups they bench but how much time do they spend on their backs right not right. enough so if we can think about and i've seen other guys just with exercise bands with your arm at your side bent and just externally rotating in a throwing position externally rotating and then standing in the throwing position and going towards, but maintaining that, those positions, working with exercise bands with that YTWL, I do that every day before practice. And like I said, after we get through four rounds of pinching, they're like, ah, they're yelling and screaming because it's burning, right? Yep. Totally focusing on those muscles that are decelerators. Yep. Incredibly violent motion, which is throwing a ball. It's so violent. And if we don't have proper deceleration, something's going to break down. And usually it's four tiny little muscles in the back of your shoulder called your rotator. For sure. Um, those are amazing exercises. Um, the YTW Blackburn uh, protocol. Um, and they're real fun. Uh, if you really want to challenge people, have them assume that position and yes. pinch everything, but then hold it. Don't move. Just hold Yeah, just hold it. And 30 seconds later, they're going to be shaking. Wow. Um, and it doesn't take much because we're not used to using them. So exactly. And I like how you said it. Um, these are the most important muscles in your body. Um, I don't think a whole lot of people realize that muscles in the body don't push things. 
everything pulls. So yes. it's pulling something one way or, or it's relaxing and the opposite muscle, the antagonist is pulling it back the other way. Um, so why is it that we always train and focus on pushing movements when everything in our body, all it knows is pulling. It pulls this way, it pulls that way. It either increases or decreases the joint angle when it pulls. Uh, and with that too, a lot of the muscles that are on the front of our body, our chest, our traps, a lot of these things, most people don't need to do a whole lot more work there. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time looks sitting good. down. You look good in the mirror though, Dan. <laughs> That's why they do it. For sure. But they spend a lot of time sitting down like this all day and maybe I they're at a- over, absolutely. Yeah, and they're already working these muscles for eight, 10 hours a day, whether they know it or not. So if you teach them to relax and pull everything back a little bit, uh, the outcomes tend to be far better. Uh, and there's been quite a bit of research on pulling exercises. And most suggest that you should be doing two to three times the amount of pulling exercises than pushing exercises. Uh, so for the people who go to the gym, you know, you're, you're not just going to stick with the bench press for upper body and call it a day. You've got to do some kind of row variation. You've got to do uh, pull-ups and pull-downs. You've got to do your external rotation, internal rotation, rotator cuff work, all these different things. Um, and that's something that I always try to do myself is I usually work my back muscles three times a week, whereas I only work the upper body pushing muscles. So shoulders, triceps, chest, once, maybe twice a week at best. Um, so I think it's kind of important to keep the um, loading side of thing in mind when we talk about all this stuff, because, you know, these are muscles that we need. It's just everyone neglects. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm old school or what, but like, I've been around coaches that, you know, have all these throwing programs and different ways to do it. And pain's natural. It's going to hurt. Just ice your arm. It'll get better. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> Why are you in pain? You shouldn't be in pain, right? We should teach ourselves how to throw properly and build up to where we're ready to start long toss and stuff. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I'm old school with that, but. Nope, <laughs> not at all. It, it doesn't make sense. Oh. And like, let's see pitchers all my teams, you know, I played for so long. As soon as they got done throwing, they got four bags of ice on their shoulder and their elbow in a, in a whirlpool. I'm like, are you hurting? No, man, I feel good. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you icing? You're stopping all that blood flow. You're going to get be stiff as anything tomorrow. Why? The only time I ever iced is if I did have a little bit of pain. If I felt good, if I threw eight, nine innings, 120, 130 pitches, then I was okay. I would cool down by doing some exercise band stuff, right? I want to keep blood flow to make sure my body's cleaning out the way it should. But throwing bags of ice on when you're done throwing and you're not in pain, you just totally stop that process. And then the next day you feel like garbage because, right, you've got yep. stuff going on that shouldn't be. So that's another thing, you know, with, yeah, it'll, it's going to hurt. It's natural. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Pain is kind of like the body's warning sign that something isn't quite right here. Yeah, we're not doing this right. Maybe we shouldn't be um, long tossing 300 feet for 20 minutes. And, you know, <laughs> just throwing an ice pack in a whirlpool and calling it a day. Nope. I, I mean, we think about what an ice pack does. We're decreasing blood flow. We're causing vasoconstriction 
Uh, Absolutely. You're stopping the body from doing its job, right? And it's going to increase your blood viscosity. So your heart now has to work harder. There's more resistance to blood flow uh, into that area. Uh, it, it does decrease inflammation and decrease pain, but th there's so many other effects that. Um, right. Yeah, that's how I just say it. If you're not hurting and you feel good, don't ice. There's no reason for that, right? Right. But it's, it's unfortunately, it's not, I don't want to say common knowledge, but people are not doing this correctly. And it's been that way forever. It just baffles me where we are. And the game has changed so much. We were talking earlier. If you look at players from my era in the 90s mm -hmm. compared to today, it, right back then when I played, it was just anybody. You're just walking down the street. It looks like a normal human being. Now we got guys that are just monsters because it's the game has just changed, right? We're getting into weightlifting now, and it wasn't that big of a deal. And I, I came up in the steroid era, and I was teammates with a lot of those guys, big mm -hmm. names that got in trouble but they were always in the weight room. So I was just oblivious. You know what I mean? The weight room was there for people, but we didn't have strength conditioning coaches leading you through a program. They were there to help pitchers get their work in. And it wasn't specific workouts. You know what I mean? It was just there. For sure. Different world. Definitely. And uh, with that, as we've kind of alluded to, there's a lot of good information, but there's also a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, so for people who want more of the good information, where should they turn to? Any good that's resources? A, that's just a difficult, difficult thing. And I've spent a lot of time looking and there are some good things out there and I don't, I don't have a list for you to give you. Yep. But if, if you want to do an experiment and you're looking, if you're a, a dad or a coach who wants to try some things, do an experiment. Type in how to increase pitching velocity and watch the first six. Just watch the first six. You mm -hmm. will do things that maybe make sense, but then you actually try to do it. And it just, there's so much dangerous stuff. People are trying to reinvent something to help people throw a hundred. And guess what? Not everybody's meant to do it, right? There aren't too many people in the world that can do it. There's only been like 18,000 people ever to play major league baseball ever in the mm -hmm. entire world. Yep. I, uh, and I those just, that are throwing under, there's a handful. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. It, uh, it must've cut out there on the zoom. Uh, but, uh, no, I just typed it in myself here just to see what comes up. And, um, the first thing to come up is practice with long toss. Basically throw the ball as far as you can over and over again. And somehow that's, yeah. you know, as we've just said, maybe 20 minutes of long toss isn't a good thing. And that's what, that's what, when you see something like that and kids will go out and throw like 30, 40, like as far as they can. Mm -hmm. Loose, you step back a little bit. Long toss is, you know, five, maybe 10 using your legs, pulling your glove hand through, just stretching it out. You, you can't go 100% as far as you can and think that's going to be, you know what I mean? It'll definitely, it's beneficial. But when it's not explained, so when you read something like that and they show a guy just, poof, and kids go out, let's long toss, and they don't warm up properly and they're not mechanically sound to begin with. Whoa, what else did you find out here? What else? Tell me about um, I just closed out of it because that oh, was- Oh, sorry. I thought you no, I just reopened it. Um, so practice with long tossed. Um, the, um, 
finger positioning, which uh, we, we did talk about that. And I think that, that plays a little bit of a role in there. Um, eat more food. This, <laughs> the description is this might come as a bit of a surprise, but the more you weigh, the more basically like gravitational pull you're going to have when you kind of fall downward. Uh, oh so my goodness. You see what I'm talking about? So here's what yep. I'm talking about, right? You've looked at three things and okay, I'm going to go out and long toss and eat couple more burgers today yep <laughs> so it is it's dangerous so in, unless you really know and maybe i'll try to look up some really good resources for you dan i never put myself out there i'm not going to do that but <clears throat> there are some really good resources and maybe i'll even i made a packet one time that i would hand out to people as i did my clinics maybe i'll send that along to you and you can share that information everything we talked about mechanic wise but it's just dangerous right when you're trying to when people are trying to reinvent the wheel or increase velocity. And I made this point to a dad brought his kid to me. And like I said, he was 5'10", a little lefty throwing 82. And he said, the, the scout said, if he's not throwing 90, he might as well forget it. How are we going to get him to throw harder? And this was at the time when Nate Robinson won the dunk contest. Remember Nate Robinson, five foot nine? Yep. I said, okay, it's February, February, April, May. I said, I'll give you two months. By May, I want you dunking a basketball with two hands. And both the dad and kid looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Nate Robinson's only 5'9", and he won the dunk contest. Why can't you do it? Because I can't jump like that. I'm like, right. <laughs> right? There's an X factor there. Yep. Nate Robinson has an incredible vertical jump. You are throwing 82 you're very mechanically sound you've got a great curveball you throw a good changeup. to think all of a sudden you're going to do something and pick up eight miles an hour right and it's hard to get that in people's brains yes you will mature as the years go on you will throw harder you're just going to mature there's always those stages right 21 it happens 24 actually it happens again there's another boost in strength i don't know why but it does but we got to be careful, right? Just do some experiments. Just watch what people are teaching. Like coming to your balance point and putting a bucket behind you, kicking the bucket and then leading with your front hip and just jumping down the mound. There's scap loading. I guarantee you're going to see scap loading. And it's just craziness. So we really got to be careful. For sure. Definitely. And I really appreciate your time and just your ability to kind of synthesize all this information because... Uh, anyone who's listening will realize very quickly there is a lot of moving parts to throwing a baseball and we think it's something that's so simple you know they I, I can't tell you how many times I hear someone say you know oh I could go out there and throw better than that guy on the tv mm -hmm. right um, and then uh, you pull up the uh, first pitches of baseball games and uh, <laughs> you, you, you just see some awful stuff right right or just going out and playing catch right you yeah for a, a softball season or you, you and your buddies go out and you you throw for 10 or 15 minutes and then next year you're like oh my goodness you know your elbow and your shoulder we're just it's just a not a natural motion we're not we don't walk around like that with our arms up in here it's just an unnatural position to put ourselves in so if we're not efficient in doing it correctly we really got to be careful for sure and again, thank you so much for your time. We really enjoyed having you on the show and sharing all this awesome knowledge and insight with us about your life, about your journey and about baseball in general. So thank you again. Oh, this has been amazing. I so appreciate what you're doing for everybody, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.